16. And again, if we could all read it out loud in whatever version you've got, uh, that's fine. Alright, so, are we ready? For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. No other verse of scripture resonates more in the heart of the believer than John 3.16. Every believer can put it from memory. It's so simple that a child can easily learn it. Yet it's so profound that theologians for centuries have grappled with the depth of it. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse. This morning we began afresh to look at it. We wondered at the breadth of it, for God so loved the world. We wondered at the depth of it that he gave his only begotten son. No matter how many creatures, or any creature, or the greatest creature that ever lived, would choose this as a text, never ever could fully unravel all of its mysteries and glories. So this morning, this morning we looked at the first half of it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Tonight we want to look at the second half of it, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But whosoever believes in him should not perish. This is where men stumble. It seems too simple, too easy, too childlike. But did not Christ say that unless we become as a little child, we shall not enter the kingdom of heaven? But we as human beings, we want to work at it. We feel that we need to do something. We've got to earn it. Surely we have some part to play in it. But no. Jesus plainly said, we have to believe. To simply believe. This is why Paul said, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Not out of yourself, it's the gift of God. Not of works so that no one can boast. <coughs> Romans 10, Paul said, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has risen from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture said, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Believe, 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 not work, work, work. The religionist believes that salvation comes after works. The believer believes that salvation is before works. Works follow salvation. Notice it says that whosoever believes in him. Jesus died for every man. For every kind of man. For every type of man. He died for the whole world. For the whosoever. 
I do not, and I don't want to offend anybody for saying this, but I do not believe in limited atonement. That is the belief that Jesus only died for certain ones, the elect. And that those who are not the elect, they're damned forever in hell. The belief is that Jesus died for the elect, but the non-elect have no chance. They're eternally lost without any hope whatsoever. Now, I cannot believe that Jesus died for the elect <laughs> and that so-called non-elect are damned forever. That makes a mockery of these verses. They are so clear. They are so plain. Now, I certainly believe in election. No question about that. But I do not believe that God has elected men to be damned. If Jesus says that God loved the world, if Jesus said that the whosoever, if the apostle Paul said, whosoever believes in him will not be put to shame. If Peter says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 1 John chapter 2, Verse 1 and 2, listen to this. My little children, these things I say to you. Now he's obviously talking to believers that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we understand he's talking to believers. But listen. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. But then he says, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What could be plainer? What right have I to say that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John didn't really mean that? That there's a hidden meaning? That somehow or other we've got that wrong? If plain speaking means anything, it means the whosoever, it means all, it means the world, whoever calls upon him, it just means whoever. See it, Spurgeon, the great preacher, Man came to him one time with a poser in the Bible to try to trick him. And he says, Do you understand that? And Spurgeon with a twinkle in his eye says, Of course I do. He says, Well, what does it mean? He says, It means exactly what it says. <laughs> nothing more and nothing less. I think Jesus meant exactly what he said. Nothing more Nothing less. And I'm glad that he did. Because that leaves the door open for every man. For God so loved the world. Every man. Everywhere. The black man. The white man. The yellow man. The brown man. The red man. The rich man. The poor man. The down and outs and the up and outs. Every single human being on the face of the earth. That's whom Jesus died for. God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not 
perish. Here's another word that men has meddled with. Even preachers have tried to soften the force of it. There are preachers today who are telling us that they do not believe in hell. They do not believe in eternal punishment. They do not believe in damnation. I don't know what Bible they read. It's not the Bible that I read. I don't know what they think Jesus taught, but he taught more about hell than he did about heaven. And the reason why they say this is because they say it puts people off God. That it's not compatible with God's love and mercy. But they willfully willfully forget that God is a judge and He is a God of justice. In Galatians 5 and 11, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, who has started out well, but when trouble came and difficulties arose, they wanted to go back into the, the feeling they had in religion when they had to take their stand for Christ. He says, you ran well, but who did hinder you that you obeyed not the truth? And then he talks about the offense of the cross. The cross is very, very offensive. And that's why many preachers no longer preach the cross because they know somebody is going to get upset in their congregation. God help us. It will upset people. It upsets the religious people very, very much. This is why Paul says that as far as the Hebrews were concerned, it was a stumbling block. Hebrews are religionists. As far as the Greeks were concerned, it was foolishness. The Greeks were the thinkers, the philosophers. Foolishness. And of course, they would quote John 3.17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now, that is absolutely true. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world. He could have. He had every right to. Because He came into a world that did not want God. He came into a world that defied God. He came into a world that, by and large, hated God. He came into a world that was going to crucify Him as the Son of God. So He had every right to condemn the world. But He didn't. Why? Because they were condemned already. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why would people not want to believe in Christ? Well, John, John's Gospel chapter 3 tells us why. If we just read on a little bit there, He who believes, verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And they didn't want to change 
what they were doing or how they were living. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. And so man actually condemns himself. Now let me just give you an illustration. And a told you this little story before, but it bears this point out. If you ever visited Turkey, many people have ever been to Pamukkale. Just saw me. What's happened to you world travelers? You were in Turkey, weren't you? And you didn't go to Pamukkale. Okay, all right. Pamukkale in Turkish is Cotton Castle. And it's that mountain that is full of hot springs and carbonate material like limestone and so forth comes out of those hot springs and comes down terraces, natural nature made them terraces all the way down the mountain. You can see it for 20 kilometers away. It's one of Turkey's natural wonders. And if you're anywhere in that region you go to see Pamukkale. Obviously, you weren't in that region. And you go there, and you can dip your feet in it. You can walk about in the pools. And it's lovely and warm. It's like milk. And it's flowing down the mountain in these great terraces. And it's a lovely sight to see. Hundreds of thousands of tourists every year go to see it. It's a big money spinner for Turkey. And, of course, we booked to go and see it. But there was another family there at the same hotel, stand where we were, and they booked the day before to go and see it. They were from Belfast. And the only thing they were there was to booze. That was, they were just boozing every day and every night. I don't think they went to the beach once. There's white as milk bottles when they came home because they spent all night in the bar. But they must have decided they were going to take a little bit of local culture, so they went to Pamukkale. And so the next day, we asked, well, what was it like? Because we'd only read about it in the brochures. We couldn't wait to go and see this thing. Akla says, don't bother. It's only four old puddles. <laughs> four old puddles? This is one of the natural wonders of Turkey. And when they looked at that, all they could see was just old puddles. <laughs> and they were condemning that as old puddles. But actually, it condemned them. It showed them up. Of people who has no love of nature and the glory of it and the wonder of it and the beauty of it whoosh, bypassed them completely. It's only out puddles. And they stood condemned because they didn't see the beauty of it. Now, whenever we show men Christ and the wonder of him and the beauty of him, and the glory of him, and the mercy of him, and the wonderful forgiveness in him. When we show that to men, and they look at that, and it's just, whoosh, no interest. Ach, it's only a fairy story. It's just a fable. Ach, he didn't really live at all. And if he did, he was just a man who was deluded. And they think by that they're condemning him. Actually, they're condemning themselves, aren't they? And you see these comedians on TV 
They're having jibes at Jesus and having jibes at the Lord all the time and movie makers do it all the time and they think somehow they're making a laughing stock. They're condemning it. Actually, they're condemning themselves. They, they stand condemned before all God because they don't see Christ as he is. They don't see his beauty and his love and his forgiveness. They've totally missed it. Now you see, the first time that Jesus came to this earth, he came as man's saviour, didn't he? But the second time he comes, he comes as judge, doesn't he? First time he came, he did not come to condemn. He came to save. But the next time he comes, he's coming to judge. He's coming to judge. In fact, in John chapter 5, It says in verse 22 of John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And that's true. Whenever us as believers stand before the judgment seat of Christ that Paul talked about to see if we're going to get any rewards, it'll be the same Jesus who will be the judge at the great white throne of judgment for the unbeliever who will be judged for deeds done in the body. And Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and 1 says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. The writer of the Hebrews said it is appointed unto men once to die and then after this the judgment. And so here is the contrast in John 3.16, as it were. That we're looking at Jesus who is full of love and mercy. We're looking at the Father who sent him who's full of love and mercy. Sent him so the world wouldn't have to be condemned in the judgment. Because it's already condemned right now. That the world may be saved. But what if we reject that? What if we don't want that? What if we don't appreciate what God's done for us? What is there left? Judgment. That's all that there's left. <coughs> now let's get back to this word perish. That they should not perish. Now is this word as bad as it appears to be? Actually, it's worse than we can possibly ever imagine it to be. It's the most awful word that Jesus ever uttered. Let me explain. Matthew 5 and 29, Jesus is talking about adultery. And then he says, if a man, and it applies to a woman, lusts after another in their heart, he says they've already committed adultery in their heart. Haven't physically done it, but spiritually have done it in their hearts. 
That's a higher standard than the law. And then he says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish, there's that word, than your whole body be cast into hell. And then in Matthew 8, you remember he's on, he's on board a ship with his disciples. He's asleep and a tremendous storm blows up. And the disciples thought for sure the boat was going to sink and they're all going to drown. You remember how they woke him up and says, Master, carest thou not that we, what? Perish. We're going to drown. We're going to perish in the sea. And then in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is speaking about wineskins. Because in those days they stored wine in skins, animal skins. He says, nor do, they put, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilt, and the wineskins are ruined, and the word is perished. They would perish. Now notice in all these three instances, the objects perish. The eye that's plucked out perishes. Those in the boat, if they sank and drowned, they would perish. All of these things are perishing. The wineskin will perish. The old wineskin of new wine is put into it. Notice all these things are physical. If you die and your body goes into the ground, it will perish. It will turn to dust. But when Jesus is speaking in John 3.16, he's not talking about something that's physical and material. He's talking about men's souls. Men's souls that will never, ever die. Men's souls that will never, ever die. The soul, although parted from the body, still lives on and is conscious all through eternity. And this is the horror of this word, perish. The soul doesn't be annihilated. It's not extinct. It never ceases to be. It always will be perishing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16, just for a moment. You know this story well in verse 19 of Luke 16. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, fared sumptuously every day, but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. This was a Jewish term for paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments, in Hades, the place of the departed dead. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes 
and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. See, he was completely conscious. He could see. Then he cried, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Fully conscious, all of his senses heightened, fully aware, could see, could speak, could feel. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, the evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here, those from there pass to you. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my brother's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. He was very aware of his brothers, wasn't he? He was very aware of their lostness because he's lost eternally. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead would you be persuaded if a man come on the 6 o'clock news and said I was dead for 10 days and I spent those 10 days in hell would you be persuaded or would you think hmm not too sure about this boy hmm do you think the unsaved would be persuaded with somebody like that. Abraham wasn't convinced, sure he wasn't. He says they have the law, they have the prophets, they have the book. And if they don't believe the book, they're not going to believe. So this perishing that Jesus talked about is something far deeper and far greater than just something material, just rotting and decaying and turning to dust. It's something that happens to the human soul that's never ending, that never ceases to be. So perishing is more than a future consequence of rejecting Christ and his gospel. It is a present condition for every man who is rejecting Christ right now. Now hang in there with me just for a second. Because the way I'm speaking up to now, you may be thinking, oh, Persian's talking about the future. It's talking about way then sometime. It's talking about when somebody goes to hell. They'll perish then. Actually, the Scriptures tell us that the people who reject Christ are actually perishing now. That will just be continued, and it will be in greater measure, but they're perishing right now. 
Listen to these scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Listen to this scripture. 2 Corinthians 4.3 But if our gospel is hid, it is hid to those who are perishing. Not who will perish, but are perishing. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10. Speaking of the Antichrist that was going to come. The coming of the lawless one is according to the workings of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteousness, all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Boy, these are somber words, aren't they? When Jesus said about perishing, it's much, much more than we could ever even imagine. And actually that dynamic of perishing is already within men already. It will just be heightened. It will just be without delusion. <laughs> How would you know you're perishing? Ask yourself this question. What do I think of the cross? Is it foolishness to me? If it is, then I'm perishing. Am I refusing to love the truth that is seen in Christ Jesus? Am I? If I am, then I'm perishing. Am I refusing God's gift of life freely given through His Son to me on the cross? If I am, then I am perishing. Couldn't be plainer. Sure it couldn't. What an awful condition to carry into eternity. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish. I said this morning, if going to hell, sorry, if saving us from going to hell, lost eternity, cost Jesus that awful death on that cross, what must hell be like if he had to suffer that to save us from it? It's no light thing, is it? knowing that that would continue for all eternity. The rich man said, Get Lazarus to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. Every passion that men have, everything they ever lusted after, they will desire that a million times more in hell. And it will never ever be fulfilled. It will be tormenting forever and forever and forever. Perishing is an awful word, isn't it? But then here's the opposite. But have everlasting life. But have everlasting life. 
In John chapter 3 again, I know we only read verse 16, but let me just point this out to you. In verse 15, Jesus said that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, actually, the translators translated the same word two different ways, and they really didn't need to do that. Eternal life really is the correct one. And it's for a reason. You say, well, what's the difference? The difference is in the emphasis. When we say everlasting life, that's speaking about the quantity of life. It's speaking about the duration of life. It's speaking about the length of life, everlasting. But when the Bible speaks about eternal life, it's speaking more about the quality of life rather than the quantity of it. Now, everlasting life is included in eternal life. But the emphasis is more on the quality of life rather than the quantity of it. Eternal life is something the believer in Christ already possesses and continues to possess throughout all eternity. Now, I want you to get this. I'm not just playing with words here. I want you to get this. Maybe, we'll, maybe in conversation or your witnesses, somebody will say everlasting life, you'll say eternal life, that's fine. But for our sakes, realize that God is more interested in quality of life than quantity of it. Eternal life is a dimension of life that we already possess in Christ that will only grow and will only be better and will only be greater throughout all eternity. Eternal life includes everlasting life, but it's life without end in all the fullness that God ever intended for us to have and for us to be. First hmm. John chapter 4. Sorry, First John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Who's he talking about? Pardon? Say it out loud. Jesus. Jesus. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Ah. See how eternal life is wrapped up in Jesus and was manifested to us. 
So this is just not talking about the duration of life or the quantity of life. It's talking about the quality of life. Then chapter 5 of 1 John, just over the page a little bit. Verse 11, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have, present tense, have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So when we talk about eternal life, we're not just talking about living forever. That's going to happen. We're not just talking about everlasting life. We're talking about life that's in God through Christ. That Christ came to manifest to us and we possess that right now. You have the life of God in you right now if you're a believer to some measure. It will, it will be multiplied a million times when you get to the glory. That quality of life. Right now we're limited because we're in a human body, aren't we? But whenever God gives us that resurrection body, we'll be unlimited in body, mind, and spirit. And that eternal life that we already possess will become greater in us than we can ever begin to imagine. Just the way those who reject Christ, when they go to lost eternity, all that awful feeling of tormenting and dread and fear and all that there will be multiplied a million times because they're really perishing. That element is really working in their life. But whenever we get to the glory, clever den, that wonderful eternal life that's now working in us will be multiplied and magnified. Glory to God. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. Ephesians 3, 19, To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled. This is some prayer of Paul's for you. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hmm. In John 5, 21, the Son gives life to whom he will. And Peter said in 2 Peter 1 and 4 that you have become a partaker of the divine nature. Doesn't mean you're divine but you become a partaker of the divine nature. There's something of eternity. You are made of the stuff of eternity. There's something of eternity in you tonight if you're a believer. And that was given to you by Christ and through Christ, that eternal life. And when you get to the glory, <laughs> then it's going to be wonderful. Then we're going to experience the fullness of everything that God has got for us. What a contrast between those two things, between perishing and having eternal life. No wonder we try to persuade men. Eh? I mean, what a future we have got. 
and what a future they have got. Because that was our future one time. That's the road we were walking down. We were on that broad way that leads to destruction and perishing. But God in his mercy came in and he saved us. And he filled us full of his love and his grace and he gave us his eternal life. And now we're partakers of that divine nature. Glory to God. Isn't that a wonderful verse? And we've only just scratched the surface. <laughs> scratched the surface. Isn't it wonderful? What a wonderful gospel that Christ has given to us. What a great truth to reach out to a loved one and to a neighbor and to a friend. If you see what they're heading to and you see what they can head to the other way, no wonder somebody came to you and somebody came to me and shared the gospel with us. I'm glad for that too. Let's pray.